This is a podcast for people and nature at the British Ecological Society. Hello, my name is Amelia and I'm a publishing assistant at the British Ecological Society. I'm delighted to be talking to Ricardo Correa today. Ricardo is an assistant professor at the Biodiversity Unit of the University of Turku in Finland. He has over 10 years experience in designing and carrying out applied and analytical research and will be discussing his recent article published in People and Nature, in which he and colleague Stefano Mamola investigated search trends for biophobias. The paper is entitled The Searchscape of Fear, a global analysis of internet search trends for biophobias, and a link to it can be found in the description of this podcast. So without further ado, welcome Ricardo. How are you today? And thank you, Amelia. It's great to be here. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How about you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm super excited to be talking to you today. It's such an interesting paper. (laughs) Thank you very Um, much, and likewise. Thank you. So, just to start us off, could you tell us a bit about the work you're currently doing and what your research's uh, interests are at the moment? Sure. Um, So, my my research interests um, revolve broadly around uh, human nature interactions, um, often with a focus on on biodiversity conservation. So I, my aim is to try to understand how people relate to nature and what insights we can uh, derive from those interactions in order to sort of uh, improve uh, the status of biodiversity. Uh, this my research has involved uh, you know various topics and it's, it's quite broad scope if if you look at my 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 past research but i'm currently focused on trying to understand um you know a, a little bit what drives uh, pop, uh, interest in in popular species or what makes people uh, species popular but also what makes other species uh, less popular or having sort of more negative uh, people having more negative attitudes uh, towards um, and, you know, it's probably within this context that the idea of uh, working with biophobias also, also emerged. So a lot of your research I've seen um, is to do with sort of search trends and this sort of idea of internet ecology. Um, what do you think is so important about that? And how did you first become interested in that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so the, the basis for it, I, I started off my academic career as, as an ecologist, basically, and I did a lot of field work, um, a lot of it in Portugal and, and around the, the Mediterranean. Um, and then I, I was always also interested in aspects of technology and how we could potentially use technology to understand, uh, again, our relationship with, with nature. And after I finished my PhD and during my first postdoc, uh, the project was actually focused on on trying to understand uh, how people perceived and valued protected areas. And within the broad um, scope of that project, we got the idea that maybe um, actually using the internet and digital tools could help with that process. Because you know nowadays, uh, communication technologies, mobile devices, you know all of these digital apps are so you know, almost ubiquitous that, um, and, and a lot of people engage with them on a daily basis. So maybe some of these interactions would be reflected uh, in, in these digital environments and we could potentially, you know, capture that uh, information and, and study those interactions through that data. And so that's uh, broadly how, how the, uh, the research has emerged and a lot of my research has indeed uh, revolved around the use of digital data to understand human nature interactions. 
And so you've used this digital data in the research that we're going to be discussing today. So as mentioned, you've published um, your research into the search trends of biophobias. I believe this study was conducted over a 227 month period, so between 2004 and 2022. Could you explain to our listeners a bit about what a biophobia is and uh, some of the theories about how they arise? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the you know, taking the official def definition for biophobia that comes from the American Psychiatric Association, a biophobia is an anxiety disorder that's defined by persistent and excessive fear uh, towards you know an object, a circumstance, or, or a situation. Uh, in the specific case of biophobias, then this this anxiety is directed towards elements of nature. Uh, you know, it can be a, a particular species or a group of species. It can be uh, an ecosystem, uh, but generally any any aspect of of nature. And um, and so we you know we um, we thought that it would be interesting to uh, study biophobias because there's a lot of debate about how biophobias emerge and what drives them. There is some um, there's some ev evidence and suggestions that there might be an evolutionary basis to biophobias because they you know in our evolutionary past it would be useful to avoid potentially dangerous animals, but that context doesn't necessarily fit with uh, you know modern uh, urban living, and so um, this causes uh, poses a question that why you know why are biophobias still prevalent and in some cases they they even seem to be increasing, so what's the basis for that? Um, one of the recently proposed uh, theories, and uh, th this was a paper that recently came out by Masashi Soga, who was also an editor of the special feature on, on uh, where the paper uh, is coming out mm -hmm. uh, in People and Nature. But um, so he's proposed this the idea of a vicious cycle of biophobias, which is partly uh, uh, driven by uh, sort of uh, information uh, pathways and, uh, you know, how these get reinforced and then turn into towards, you know, a, a disconnection with nature or specific be behaviors of avoidance and sort of tend to reinforce over time. And so it's really interesting that information plays a key role in this process. Um, one, of the, one of the ideas that we then drew upon for this research is, um, you know, if people have a stressful encounter, one of the, the theories of how people might cope with it is called the stress and coping theory. So they'll try to develop mechanisms to cope with it. And one of those mechanisms is indeed searching for information. Of course, you know, nowadays, the main source of information for most people is likely to be the internet. We open the phone or the computer when we Google something. So we thought, Maybe you know these uh, these um, uh, dynamics of biophobias are also expressed in online data, and can we use it for this purpose? So that's how the context of the, the research emerged. But then we used uh, uh, exactly data from uh, Google searches that is available since uh, two thousand and four, and until well, uh, at the time the research was carried out, the end of twenty twenty two, and we tried to explore. Um, you know, temporal trends and, and sort of broad the spatial patterns of interest in different biophobias. So just with um, the sort of the time frame that you are investigating, um, I think so towards 2022 and the end of your study, did you expect that there would be more users than there were in 2004 when perhaps the internet was a bit newer? And um, how did you account for that in your research? That, that's also a great question. So definitely, um, 
access to the internet has increased worldwide. And um, nowadays, more than half of the world's population is thought to have access to, to the internet. Um, so definitely the number of, of users has increased over, over time. Um, one of the interesting aspects of our data is that it's, um, it's that the volume of searches is quantified in relation to the total volume of searches for a given country. So the number of users is increasing, the volume of searches is increasing, but because we're looking at the relative proportion uh, of searches in, in the broad, you know, in, in the total volume of searches for, for a given period, we would expect that if trends remain more or less the same, um, then we, even if people join, then we wouldn't see this reflected because it's relative to, to the total. Um, so the fact that we, we found an increasing trend over time for you know, uh, a broad set of the, we explored 25 biophobias and uh, for uh, um, almost 20 of them, we found uh, an increasing trend. So it does suggest that maybe you know, people are increasingly searching for this information and, and maybe they're becoming more, more prevalent over time. Although, of course, there are caveats with regards to where people are searching for and uh, you know where uh, where the new uh, members uh, of society that are joining and having access to the internet are emerging from. Um, so you know th there's uh, there's a complex picture to be to be uh, taken and it needs to be interpreted with with caution. But based on the nature of the data, it does suggest that indeed these trends are increasing. So you investigated these twenty five biophobias as well as an additional twenty five general phobias. Could you explain why you were looking at these and what generally you were testing for in this study? Yeah, so so again, the the idea was that, and we we kind of already the, the underlying hypothesis based on earlier research was that indeed uh, biophobias are suggested to have become more prevalent. So we were expecting an increase, um, but then we wanted to understand how this increase compared with other. Uh, uh, phobias, not necessarily related to nature, because there's also some evidence that those may be increasing. And so we took a, a set of uh, 25 additional phobias, um, things including, for example, social phobia, claustrophobia, fear of flying or fear of uh, going to the dentist, um, um, that, that seemed to be sort of widespread. And we wanted to compare the trends we found for biophobias and for these other phobias to understand uh, the dynamics and whether phobias were generally increasing. And indeed, that seems to be the case, particularly for uh, a few um, you know, a few specific phobias, including social phobia, uh, which maybe makes sense in, you know, in, in the wake of the recent pandemic. And, um, but, but we found that generally there's an increasing uh, trend for searches towards phobias, broadly speaking, on the internet. Biophobias are not increasingly as rapidly as other phobias, which suggests that maybe the problem of biophobias is, um, you know, uh, needs to be taken into, into scale compared to, to uh, other phobias, but they are still nevertheless increasing. And so it was, you know, in a way it validated sort of suggestions that biophobias may be becoming more prevalent uh, in modern societies. Were there any of the phobias that you found were increasing in trend that really stood out for you and were quite surprising? Um, well, I, th I think maybe the, you know, again, picking up from, from my recent example of social phobia, but I think uh, fear of uh, germs and, and mm. viruses seemed to be increasing over time. And there was a peak around the pandemic, which kind of makes sense. And I think we saw... Uh, 
you know, we, we maybe still have images of people uh, you know, becoming stressed over buying toilet paper and rushing to, uh, you know, there's all sorts of behaviors emerging during during the pandemic. And, you know, I think it's very normal because it was a very real um, um, issue that was affecting yeah, the, the whole world. And so it's normal that people were developing uh, anxious uh, sort of uh, anxiety towards uh, towards. Um, Germs and other other uh, forms of uh, uh, of you know biodiversity that can potentially mm. affect us. So I think that makes sense, but it, it kind of reinforces again the idea that maybe um, maybe the trends that we observed have indeed sort of a a, a reflection in, in the real world. The degree to which these uh, these behaviors continue to um, to be prevalent in in broader society, it's uh, I think it's up for question. It, the trend seems to be increasing over time. It did decrease after sort of the pan- the pandemic waned, mm-hmm. uh, but it it didn't return to the baseline level. So yeah, you know, it could be that some people retain this 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 phobia to some extent. Oh, definitely. I know my family have not moved past the just insane amounts of detol everywhere at this point. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I, you know, you see it in, in, you know, across across countries and across societies for sure. So, in um, the sort of discussion part of and your results section of this paper, you mentioned that there's a sort of um, spatial result that you got where the US and the UK showed the highest number of biophobias with a search interest of 24 out of the 25 biophobias mm-hmm. that you investigated. And then this was followed by Australia and then Canada, Mexico and India, which I think respectively had um, 23 and then 22 for the block of three. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think about this? You mentioned that it could be due to a rise in the urban populations in these countries. Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question because we we compared trends over time, but then we also looked at the prevalence of the prevalence of searches for different biophobias in different countries. And one of the, as I mentioned briefly earlier, one of the hypotheses that it's been suggested for the prevalence and emergence of and, and growing trend of biophobias in modern societies is indeed related to urban living. Um, and and the hypothesis there is that we may encounter uh, sort of elements of nature in a situation where they might we might not expect it. Mm. You know, you might have you might be going to bed and you know you open the sheets and there's a spider in your bed and you know you kind of <laughs> uh, and this this may be unexpected, may cause a little bit of anxiety, and then it might be miscontextualized. So we try to explore uh, some of the potential. Um, hypotheses that have been proposed as drivers for for these um, for these phobias. One of them is whether or not people are exposed to potentially dangerous animals, because that could justify xenophobia. Those would be you know instances where that fear is justified. But we also wanted to approach uh, the question of whether indeed in countries or maybe um, you know the, those uh, those fears are maybe less founded. Whether that was still the case mm. that phobias were, were prevalent. And and that was indeed what we found. So the presence of dangerous, potentially dangerous animals is a factor that seems to affect significantly uh, the prevalence of different phobias, but so is um, the, the history of urban living in the country and the urban population in that country. And I think what is particularly interesting in our results is that we didn't look solely at the you know the percentage of a country that lives in, in in urban environments versus rural environments, but we looked 
at the temporal variation of that of that population. So whether the population had been increasing, stable, or decreasing mm-hmm. at the time. And what we found is that it is in those countries where urban populations have been established for longer, so they're not increasing, they're either stable or, or, or decreasing in some instances, um, that biophobias seem to be more prevalent. Yeah. So what this suggests is perhaps there is indeed a link between urban living and uh, the prevalence of biophobias in, in contemporary societies. And so this adds some weight to that hypothesis, but of course it needs to be explored in, in more detail. We, one of the advantages of our approach is that we can take a, you know, a large scale approach tackling multiple countries, but we lose the, the specificity of going into the detail of each specific country and each population. So this should be uh, you know, further validated in, in future studies for sure. What are the implications of your findings for the field of ecology as a whole, but especially for biodiversity and conservation, um, yeah. maybe for species that people tend to be a bit more afraid of? I think, um, so there are, there are two aspects I'll, I'll, I'll bring out for this. On, on the one hand, there's definitely the aspect of how we uh, interact and engage with nature, how connected we are to the nature uh, and mm-hmm. the environments around us. Um, we know that you know, people interact differently uh, with nature and that there's been, uh, there are suggestions of a growing trend towards disconnection with nature. Um, and I think that our research suggests that tackling these, particularly within an urban context, may be important, even from a mental health perspective, mm-hmm. in the sense that we may, you know, people may get distressed by losing that connection, develop and potentially unfounded fears towards nature. And so that should be um, an aspect of concern and of uh, further uh, sort of action. The other aspect that I think is quite interesting to think about is how it then relates to efforts towards preserving uh, biodiversity. Um, you know, there's a, a general agreement that if people, uh, you know, are fond of specific species, they may be more keen to preserve them. There might be more support for that. So what happens in, to those groups and, and species that uh, people may be fearful towards? Um, and I think it's quite important to, to understand uh, how biophobias may affect people's behavior towards conservation and how we can, we can tackle mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, I think these are the, the sort of two broad uh, aspects I'd like to, to bring forward with, with regards to implications of our, of our work. In that sense, how do you think that connectedness with nature could be improved? Is it through education or is it something else? Yeah, I, I th- so again, I, I do think information plays a role. Um, and so education is, is one way to put it. But I think, you know, I, I'd frame it as having the capacity to contextualize um, uh, sort of encounters with nature and, and put them in, in in the right context, and so I I wouldn't necessarily say it needs mm-hmm. to go through formal education, but it's exactly by recovering that connection with nature and being able to experience it and contextualize those interactions mm-hmm. that I think is the way forward. I think here, for example, giving a a, a, a very recent development here in, in Turku, where I'm currently living and working, um, the city, together with the university, secured funding to establish biodiversity parks across the city. So these are parks that will act both as sort of uh, islands for biodiversity, but also as opportunities for people to engage with it uh, and even learn about uh, biodiversity. And I think those parks, you know, in a city context, can have quite an important role in stimulating, um, you know, 
people's connection to, to nature. Brilliant. So this is a fascinating area of research and it's super interesting to be discussing with you today. Um, so I'd love to know what got you interested in this area? How did you come to study biophobias? Yeah, so um, it's it's a mixture of, of factors. So my, as I already mentioned, my broad interests are, are around, um, you know, what drives um, people's interest in species and how we interact with, with biodiversity. Um, so, of course, biophobias play a role. But then there was also a component of uh, my colleague uh, and uh, collaborator in this work, Stefano Mamola, who's uh, a spider ecologist. And he's done a lot of work uh, on how spiders are represented in the media, the role of misinformation, and how it may indeed sort of uh, lead to, to phobias. Because fear of spiders is thought, that, as we discussed, it's thought to be one of the most common ones. So he, he was exploring those dynamics. And he's currently based in Italy, but he was, he was in Finland and in Helsinki for some time. So we, we occasionally met and discussed all of these aspects, but we never materialized that, that these connections and shared interests. And then when the, the, the opportunity to contribute to the special feature that People Nature is developing on biophobias emerged, mm. we, we got in touch and we thought, you know, maybe this is the right uh, timing to actually start uh, exploring some of the ideas we had. So combining his interests and uh, basic, our interests and, and expertise around the topics of, you know, how biodiversity gets communicated, how people use um, digital tools to interact with aspects of, of biodiversity uh, and communicate about it. We thought that we could we could do something around biophobias. And, and then it was really the, through the exploration of, uh, I've been uh, working a lot with this um, uh, search data from, from Google for some time. And I've been uh, reading a lot about sort of what the ways and theories on, of how people contextualize and search for information. Mm -hmm. So that was also one of the clicks that that thought made us think that this was was the right type of, of data. So this this theory of stress and coping that people will search for information when they when they're faced with a stressful event um, and where they might search for it. We thought of course the internet is a prime uh, means for people to search for information. So this must be reflected online. Let's try and explore that. Um, so that's that's the context on how this work emerged. So I asked you earlier, I'm going to ask you again, um, because I think it's just fantastic. Do you have any biophobias, would you say, Ricardo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, not not that I'm aware of. It doesn't necessarily mean that I've, you know, I, there are still many groups that I'd like to engage with and maybe I'll, I'll find my fears when, <laughs> when I do so, but not... Uh, not that I'm aware. There was a, you know, an interesting event recently as part of this. Uh, when the paper came out, it got quite a bit of attention uh, from the, the news media, particularly here in Finland. Um, and I was invited for a, for an interview uh, at the zoo, at the terrarium, uh, where you know we would also have the, the chance to take some pictures and contextualize this this interview about biophobias. And then the curator, uh, uh, I was there with the journalist and uh, with the photographer, and he asked, "Ah, oh, would you like to?" to hold one of these uh, um, Madagascar hissing cockroaches. As, you know, it, I think it can result in a really nice picture. And it's really interesting because as soon as he went to grab one for the picture, he started hissing, as the name implies, and <laughs> both the journalist and the photographer were horrified by it. 
but I was, yeah, fine. You know, I, and I held, uh, I took a picture holding one in my hand, which made it to the cover of the one of the national newspapers, <laughs> which I was completely surprised by. And they started from the interview exactly with that, saying that you know they found it horrific, but Ricardo didn't, you know, didn't even flinch when he was given the opportunity. So. You know, again, answering your, your question, I don't think I have a, a biophobia, but maybe I haven't discovered it yet. <laughs> so for our listeners, we're going to find um, a clip of this hissing cockroach sound because it is terrifying. It's so loud. Yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But it was it was quite interesting, and you know, it didn't. To me, what what it um, you know the feelings it brought about were, were fascination. Mm. You know, the diversity of uh, of life forms in our planet is just is just uh, you know, to me fascinating. So having the chance to uh, explore them and study them and how people interact with them for me is a, is a big pleasure. So following on from this research, what changes would you like to see? Um, what do you want the sort of impact and the legacy of this paper to be? Well, I think um, one of the things I'd like to see is definitely more work towards exploring the the, you know, the origins and dynamics of modern day biophobias. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's quite quite important to to understand it, as I said, because it has implications both from you know for people from a mental health perspective, but also for our relationship with the natural world and potentially for conservation. And and I think our paper provides uh, sort of uh, corroborating evidence to some of the theories that have been proposed. But I think a lot more needs to be done with different approaches, different sources of data, uh, and there's a lot more to explore that. Um, so I, I definitely hope that the paper can sort of spur, uh, you know, additional research on this topic. And for you personally, what are your next steps? What are you going to be working on? Um, so, um, I've got, I've got a project that I'm currently working on that, uh, sort of aims to really tackle this, this relationship between people's, uh, sort of perceptions of biodiversity and of specific species and specific groups and how, um, how we can better understand that and using those insights, how we can, we can translate it into, into conservation action. So that's one of the, one of the aspects that I, uh, that I'll continue pursuing. Um, the second line of research that I'm, I'm interested in is, is indeed to, so I think one of the ways to also fight biophobias and, you know, to, to, to reconnect people with nature is to the importance of demonstrating the importance of, of biodiversity for, for people. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of research emerging around nature's contributions to people. Uh, a lot has been done, but I think a lot more can be done. Um, and I'm, I'm also interested in, in sort of thinking mm. and exploring um, sort of benefits that haven't been uh, maybe sort of um, um, put forward and, and seeing how they play out and uh, how they might help spur, um, a, you know, be- a be- better relationships with, with uh, the nature that surrounds us. So as we mentioned earlier, you've been working in ecology for the last 10 years. Um, do you have any advice that you'd give to ecologists coming into the field or even people who are looking to maybe get started in um, a career in ecology? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the best person to give advice in the sense that I'm very well aware that I come from sort of a, a privileged background in the sense that I had the support for my family to pursue studies in ecology. Um, 
and you know they've always supported me. I used to do a lot of field work, even as a, an undergraduate student, because I was just interested in in the topic, and and because of that support as well, I I, I wasn't uh, fearful of maybe pursuing perhaps what people would perceive as more quirky uh, interests, you know, for example, at the intersection between digital data and, and, and conservation, that might not be something that would come, uh, you know, as, as a first idea to an ecologist. Um, but I think I've been successful at that. Um, and I've been very lucky to have, uh, you know, great people to work with. And I really appreciate the support I've had for, both from my family and from my colleagues in developing the work that got me this, this far. But if, if there is a message that maybe I can, I can squeeze from my experience is the fact that, um, you know, I, I would recommend that people not to be fearful of exploring different avenues. You know, sometimes, uh, um, there are some pathways that are perceived as being, you know, safer, and particularly if people want to stay in academia. I think nowadays um, so much is changing, and some changes for good, some maybe not, others not so much. But I think it's really difficult to provide specific advice because each case is a case. Mm -hmm. But definitely, if, if you're following your passions, if, if you're following your interests, then uh, at least you're having fun. And so I, <laughs> that's what I try to do. And so that's what I'd recommend as well. And hopefully that you, you know, uh, by engaging with your interests and, and being cherishing the work you do, you'll, you'll continue to go further. Lovely. I think that's so important, enjoying what you do, especially if you're going to be doing it for a while. You have to like what you're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're coming to the end of our podcast today. Just before we finish, do you have any shout outs to anyone that you'd like to give? Um, do you have any collaborators, friends, family, or just any inspirations that you'd like to um, talk about? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I've already mentioned you know, many, many colleagues and, and family, so I feel I've been very lucky and supported throughout this process. But I think in, in, in the context of what we discussed today here, uh, I think really a shout out has to go to my uh, colleague and uh, collaborator and friend, Stefano Mamola, who's been absolutely instrumental in, in sort of co-developing and uh, the ideas and the work together. Um, uh, you know, I, in, I, I, I can say it here in the podcast, I really miss him being in Finland. He's now returned oh. to, to Italy. And we had great fun um, whenever we met. And we still, you know, are engaging. But uh, I miss the, the interactions that we had more, uh, you know, more closely, like, you know, maybe going out for a beer, discussing wild ideas. And so a big shout out to Stefano. And, you know, thank you for, for co-developing this work. I think it was great fun. So. Fantastic. Ricardo Correa. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you, Amelia. It was a pleasure. And you know, thank you to everyone who might be listening to this later.